Welcome to the Tech Deep Dive podcast, where we let our inner nerd come out and have fun getting into the weeds on all things tech. At Clarksys, we believe tech should make your life better, searching Google is a waste of time, and the right vendor is often one you haven't heard of before. Hi, I'm Max Clark, and I'm talking with Steve Mills, who's the Senior Vice President and GM of the Americas for Rackspace Technology, and Tyler Goodlett, who is the Senior Director of Sales. Guys, thanks for joining. Hey, good morning, Max. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Steve, I'm, I'm sorry. I have to out you here for a little bit here. Your LinkedIn says that you started with Rackspace in 2006 as an intern. That's true. And left and, and, was, and then you worked in help desk for a little bit over a year. And in the 14 years since then, you have worked yourself up to running the Americas for Rackspace. That is a heck of a haul. <laughs> yeah, and there, uh, there certainly was that little gap between being an intern and, and full time. So uh, in, in between that, uh, that little snit, I was actually a cook at a Greek food uh, place called Demos. So uh, it, it's a pretty interesting tale indeed. <laughs> and Tyler, you're not in much better shape. You've, you've been with Rackspace for about 10 years now too, right? Yeah, f- funny enough, Steve and I actually went through the uh, two-week sales onboarding training together that we had many, many moons ago. The The program has now moved to about four months, but Steve and I uh, were expected to learn it in, t- in two. So it was a, uh, a really unique experience to get to uh, go through that together. Yep. So, so this is something that's always struck me. If you've ever done a Zoom with somebody at Rackspace, I mean, there's banners hanging behind people's desks five <laughs> years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, you know. And this is not an atypical story for Rackspace. I mean, Rackspace really does retain staff for a really, really long time. And that is very atypical in the tech space in general and sales even more so. That's right. Yeah, well, I would, I would say it's probably, you know, we, we call ourselves Rackers. We always will. Tyler and I, I, I guess we would be considered old school at this point, given our tenure. But I mean... There's people that have been there for 20 years. You know, there's there's folks that are ex-rackers that we still celebrate the same way. Uh, our founders, Graham Weston, et cetera, that have just stayed with it the whole time. But how we uh, how we manage the culture, how we think about retaining top talent. I mean, that's all. It's all core to what we do, and it's uh, it's one of the most fun parts about working there. But yeah, we we love celebrating uh, the the flags and you know every milestone that goes with it. And Rackspace right now is going through a period of reinvention as well. Uh, so the company started as a dedicated server, what we call bare metal nowadays, you know, dedicated server company and got really good at scaling and, and bringing equipment online and managing equipment for companies. Right. And really this, this shift, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly when the flag is right in the sand, but you know, two, three years ago, there's there, there became this pretty big shift into public cloud and this, this concept of hybrid cloud. I mean, what, what, how did that transition come about and, and, and what's, what has that looked like over the last, you know, X years? Yeah, it's a good question. And so, you know, I started in, in 2006. I'll kind of give you the, the quick history lesson in how we think about the company transforming in itself, what drives us, why we do it. But so I joined, I joined in 2006, tail end of the startup days, right before we did our uh, IPO originally in 2008. And so there was, you know, at that time for us, a primary focus around managed hosting, to your point, right, bare metal servers managed out of our data center. And we, you know, the big sort of revolutionary uh, part of our offer and what became the core of fanatical experience, as we as we still call it today, was that we would manage all the way up to the application tier for customers. So we could get servers online, bare metal faster than anyone at the time. And we offered more service. And that carried us from a growth perspective for effectively a decade. It was going, 
you know, extremely well. Um, obviously, the emergence of public cloud uh, technology providers like AWS and others created a little bit of, uh, of competition at the time until we sort of had, I think, this, um, and I, I can remember the point in time where we created OpenStack, which was our own competitive public cloud offer. We, we still, in fact, are managing the largest uh, OpenStack public cloud still to this day. But there, there was a secular moment where we realized that, you know, customers actually really want hybrid, right? They want choice. And that's what we were calling it at the time. It was bare metal private cloud with rack space plus our public cloud offering together. And for customers, that allowed us to take a very nice workload-driven approach, et cetera. But when AWS, to my other point, and others started popping up, we realized, hey, this is just another great cloud technology. We're never going to be able to innovate from a product standpoint, the features, et cetera, as fast as they are. But our customers want to adopt it. They want to leverage it for other workloads. And that sort of put us down the path of multi-cloud as we think about it today. But Ultimately, in the end, we're always going to be a services partner for our customers, and we're always going to look at the various parts of our partner ecosystem and the different parts of the multi-cloud or hybrid cloud portfolio as you know, just options for our customers. And, and we try to help advise them on which workloads go best where and, and take that very unbiased approach. So I have a feeling we'll stay down that path of transformation for, for many years as we evolve with our customers. You said something that just now that was... I think key to this whole story here, which is managing the infrastructure for the customer up to the application stack. That's right. Most companies now, and especially since the cloud has become so popular, care less and less about the physical infrastructure. I mean, some people still get into this dialogue if I want to, you know, fill in the blank server model spec. But when it really comes down to it, most people just say, hey, I have this application. I need to run this application. I need it to be available for my employees, my customers, my staff, my machine, whatever it is. And I don't really care what it's running on. Just make it work and make it and make sure it works all the time. And that commoditization of infrastructure happened in the server world and then even in the, the network space some time ago. And it really also, you know, it's moving forward also into the public cloud, the hyperscaler environments as well. Right. And it's a good story, right? You know, it's it's because people, I mean, do people really care if they're in AWS or GCP or Azure? I mean, to some degree, yes. But I mean, to other degrees, like, is that really the center of the conversation? Or it's just, I have this application, I need it to work. Can you make it work for me? Right. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. It shifts, I think, a, a little bit and kind of goes through cycles. But I will say more and more, I'm hearing customers talk about app portability. I want to just be able to... to make sure it's up and running, make sure that it can scale, make sure that it's secure. It's much more focused on what outcome am I trying to deliver? Now, there's certainly different places where economics play in, right? And, and you can see different uh, different outcomes depending on where you choose to, to place your application or your data. Uh, but generally speaking, I think it's a workload by workload discussion. There's obviously many companies that you know are born in the cloud, start cloud native day one and are leveraging you know, more advanced techniques around containers, serverless, and can truly, you know, distribute their their application wherever they want it to go, and they can move it quickly, you know, build it up, tear it down, etc. But there's many customers that are still balancing, how do I get to that with this big legacy footprint? Do I, you know, when I say transform it, do I mean, I'm just going to lift and shift it? Am I going to refactor it? Am I going to sunset it? And so it really is more of a workload by workload case. But yeah, I think I think you're spot on. I think the concept of where you're actually hosted matters a lot less nowadays. It's more about what outcomes are you driving. App portability seems like for most people, I mean, it's a goal. It'd be nice to be able to say, hey, we have app portability and we can instantaneously migrate from this environment to this other environment. 
in practice, I feel like that is a rare unicorn in the world. <laughs> Not very many people can really affect and say, I mean, I mean, but it's true, right? I mean, look at the amount of infrastructure that runs in a single region or a single availability zone on a public cloud today. I mean, that is the normal environment where most people are constrained into a single AZ in a single region, let alone being able to say, hey, I can dynamically shift workload between this cloud, that cloud, my own physical environment. I mean, that's that's a future state that that a lot of places have not quite achieved yet. And one of the, you know, Max, to that, not to, to interrupt you, but one of the things that I think uh, <clears throat> this pandemic has really helped accelerate, obviously, adoption of cloud, work remote, all those things that we've seen. But that conversation has become the forefront of the majority of, of the conversations that we're having with customers today. It's how can you give me that flexibility? What professional services that can you provide to help us be able to be in that position to move workloads when necessary, to move workloads based on maybe financial decisions or whatever the case may be? And so you're really starting to see that accelerate, which has been you know kind of refreshing uh, to be in some of those conversations. But it's not, I mean, this isn't a like, hey, I've just decided tomorrow that I want to move from you know, we'll just say Amazon to Google, right? I mean, it could be Google to Amazon, Amazon. I mean, there's, there's lots of permutations of this thing. This grid becomes very complex pretty quickly, right? So it's not just saying, hey, I want to move from vendor A to vendor B tomorrow. I mean, there's a lot that goes into this. And this is something that Rackspace does help people with and figure out, hey, you should be here, you should be over here instead, you're, you have this goal that you're trying to get to. So I mean, how much of that conversation is driven by technology? And how much of that conversation is driven by the CFO and the financial realities of, of running these applications now? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. And, and to go back to the prior point, though, for a second, I, I think, you know, app portability certainly is more the dream than the reality. And it's really more like apps, right? Plural for many of our customers. And I think that's really an important nuance, especially as we, we think about the other side of your question, which is, you know, is it technology driving the decision or is it the business driving the decision? And how, how realistic is it to actually manage through that? One, I would say, and, and Tyler, I'd love to hear you know your your opinion after working with a, a lot of customers and partners. But I feel like it's more the CFO, the CIO, yeah, or CEO rather that's that's driving a lot of that decision nowadays. And it's you know right now with COVID, to Tyler's point, you know it's more about I need to get there to save costs, to drive this outcome, to be able to spin up this new type of business model so that we can react to the world differently. And that's that's a great catalyst, but. You know, ultimately, you can't have one without the other. You always have to marry it back to a technology discussion because there's so many dependencies. And, you know, even if it were, hey, I want to move from AWS to GCP, just even mapping out the the migration, understanding all of the, you know, dependencies that go into it, just that one aspect is very challenging. And so enter Rackspace, right? To your point, that is what we focus on with our customers is not only to help them understand what the options are. But to provide that, that, and I'll say it again, that unbiased advice around what is the right outcome, which workloads should go where, and ultimately, how do we you know, drive whatever outcome you're looking for, whether it's, I want to be more flexible and more agile in my deployment model, or I actually want to install a, you know, a true DevOps framework, start building a CI/CD pipeline, et cetera, or as simple as I just need to save money. I mean, all of those are you know, typical conversation starters. And where it goes, it, it, you know, it really depends customer by customer, but we do have a pretty good view and playbook around it. I feel like anybody who's been involved with tech for a long time, there's a sense of like, oh, there's this new shiny thing out there and it has benefits for the, you know, for our, our business and we can improve in pro- operations with it and taking that and bringing that into an organization, you know, is reflected on like, oh, you just want the new shiny toy. Like this isn't, we're not going to do it. 
And so that's why I was asking, like, what else actually drives these things? Because a, a cloud migration, there's a lot of pieces that go into these things. I mean, nowadays, we talk about data center to cloud migrations are relatively, I don't want to say easier, but it usually is, um, the timeline is more specific. Hey, we have a contract that's expiring. We have equipment that's aging out. We have some kind of event that's that's driving the shift now for us beyond just a, a financial conversation of trying to switch from a CapEx to an OpEx or, or this to a that or these sorts of things. It's more of a, hey, if we don't do this by this date, our contract renews and we're stuck for another however many years, right? And when you talk about, you know, in the public cloud space, you know, the equivalent of that is reserved instances, or maybe you're on some sort of, uh, you know, an agreement discount program with the cloud provider itself. But that migration process, if, especially at scale, I mean, this is not a simplistic thing. I mean, these things, right. six months, nine months, a year, year plus worth of migration projects that come into it. And so how does, and that also is very expensive. I mean, running two at the same time is not a cheap endeavor. I mean, this you have to have a lot of will with the organization from a lot of different places, the organization to actually affect this change. Right. How does Rackspace, I mean, how do you help with this? I mean, how do you walk a customer through this process of, you know, hey, somebody woke up one day and said, hey, I think we should go multi-cloud or I think we should go over to this other cloud. What does it really look like though, in terms of your engagement and going through that process up into the actual, like, we're going to make this decision to do it. And then after the decision to do it. Yeah, no, maybe I'll answer the the sort of first part here and then let let Tyler jump in with maybe some real world uh, customer experiences that he's had recently. But, you know, if I if I just take it from the top, right, the most common conversation we start with is I need to move to the cloud, right? Everyone has this uh, strategic imperative that they have to get there if they're not already there. And for those that aren't already there, you know, I think the reality is they just realize, you know, they're they're so far behind market they're losing, you know, competitive foothold by being stuck in a data center and a colo facility, whatever the case may be, right? And that's that's a mentality shift that I, I think has been happening for quite some time. But you know, when we actually get into okay, you want to move to the cloud, what does that actually mean? There's so many different versions of what cloud adoption looks like. And it's it's not a it's not an endpoint is the most important thing that we have to stress to our customers to anyone that we're helping it, it truly is. And I hate to use, you know, a, a jargon phrase, but it really is a journey, right? There's, there's really no start or stop if you're doing it the right way, because it's about continuous improvement over time. And that's, that's one of our pillars that we focus on with customers is, okay, you want to get to the cloud, you think AWS is the right option, because that's what your board talks about. That's what your buddies talk about. That's what your team talks about. But Let's actually unpack that. Let's take a look at you know what your you know what workloads you have today. What are the requirements? How do you think about security? Do you want to be multi AZ? Does that work for you from a cost perspective, or is there some scenario where you step your way into it by moving to let's say private cloud first, and then have a portion that's you know hybrid connected out to the cloud, and so on and so forth? But that's just my view in terms of. One, I think if, if our customers haven't already started making the move, they're way behind. And COVID, I think, has made that even more apparent for, uh, for mo- mo- you know, most folks uh, that, that were in that camp, let's say. And then the get to the cloud part, you really have to unpack it because there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a predetermined destination that makes the most sense, I, I don't think. But Tyler, what's your take and, and what, are you, what are you hearing from customers as you walk them through kind of our time-tested model, if you will? Yeah, I think the thing that I find most unique, uh, and really it's, it's COVID, I think sent it to the stratosphere, but I think it's been going on for some time. But, you know, to see the push from top down rather than bottom up for technology, I think is very unique. 
but I think it's also put a lot of pressure on the technical folks, right? To deliver on these projects, keep businesses running. And so as we get into these conversations, the, the unique uh, piece about Rackspace is we really have to suffice two groups, right? We have to suffice the business buyer, right? We have to talk to them about what is the journey actually going to look like? What are the milestones? What are the financials going to be? You know, when are you going to be experiencing double bubble versus when you're not? You know, when is the, the professional services statement of work going to hit? So when are you going to have a cash outlay? All of these things that they care about, right? So there's always the track of making sure that you can tie off with them from a financial perspective to make them comfortable with the path that you want to take them on. And then secondarily to that, there's the actual real life work, as I call it, but the actual technical track. And it's making sure that you have all of the right players on both sides of the fence committed to different timelines, right? Committed to delivering on certain milestones, being able to test, being able to make sure that we migrate on time, maybe make sure that we have cutover dates identified, all of the things that matter while we manage to contracts expiring and auto renewal contracts. And so the, the depth of the conversation has dramatically changed, right? To the point where, you know, we know as a customer wants to move, for example, to, you know, a multi-cloud strategy or, or whatever their their end state is, you know, we're looking at what are their current contracts in place? When do they expire? What are the ETFs associated with it? And so it's a, it's a holistic view that you have to be able to tell a story to two really different audiences in order to be successful and for the customer to have confidence in your ability to deliver. And so I would say that's one of the things that's most unique is just the level at which we're working with our customers nowadays is very different than it ever was. And something that I've seen Rackspace do with customers is help them, let's call it financially engineer these migrations. Yep. Because there is a significant financial commitment and component to these things. And actually, can you can you talk about that and a little bit what that entails and what, what people see with this? Because I, I think this is a very interesting aspect of, of what this is. Yeah, that's that's a great, great point to focus on. And I was actually going to dovetail off of something that Tyler had mentioned as well, which is one, it, it is it is a very detailed, in-depth conversation. It's one that is fraught with I don't know those gotchas didn't think of that along the way. And we see that every single day. So one, when it gets down to, you know, something really important like financial modeling, we can actually manage that extremely efficiently for our customers. So one, we can we can build the model for them really go through the paces of understanding, is it going to produce the outcomes you're looking for? Where are the overlapping fees, et cetera? And then on our side, because we we have so much muscle memory around being able to actually help customers walk through that, we've built our model in a way to where we can be creative, very flexible with our customers. So as an example, we can actually build in, you know, migration time, ramp schedule, you know, uh, schedules, things of that nature within the agreement to actually help customers completely avoid the double bubble cost that goes into the actual migration. That's one example. On our professional services, um, you know, engagements, you know, depending on which model we land on, exactly what the scope looks like, we could get really creative in terms of having, you know, those expenses hit later or that's modeled in. But generally speaking, I, I can't think of a, scen- a scenario with the customer, especially within the last year, year and a half, where we haven't been able to financially engineer, to your point, Max, a situation where they can make the move without any overlapping cost or without the savings realized within one to two years of, of everything that we've modeled out. We, I think we've really dialed in how we think about it. And I think we've, we've really got ourselves and our customers into a situation where they have optionality, one. And because we're such a large partner with AWS and Google and 
Microsoft and Dell and VMware and all the major technology providers behind our, our uh, services offering that we have good leverage. We can help them really navigate getting to you know, the best financial outcome really quickly, no matter who, who we're leveraging behind the scenes. Going multi-cloud, I mean, from a technology standpoint, it requires you to be somewhat not bought into that cloud's managed services ecosystem, right? You can't be too into their native databases or their data, you know, calling or storage or, you know, there, there's certain requirements that go into it. But yeah, what I do see a lot is I see application workloads all of a sudden shift, mm-hmm. you know, data analytics, uh, data warehousing, um, and machine learning. All of a sudden, this like this carve out happens of like, oh, this thing should go over here and boom, it goes. And, and that's something else that you guys help people with understanding, like, hey, you've got this application that's running, it's doing X, Y, and Z, and it should really run over here. So not necessarily, I, I think people hear multi-cloud sometimes and think like, oh, we're going we're gonna to run the same application multiple places at the same time. But that's not really what multi-cloud is for most people, right? Yeah, no. I mean, there may be a multi-cloud DR scenario, right? Disaster recovery where you want to, you don't want to have it on, you know, both both cloud providers as an example, right? So there's some decisionality that goes goes along those lines, but when we when we describe multi-cloud, it's really if you think about fully packaged workloads, right? All the RAM, compute, storage, you know, data, apps, you know, security as an example. However, you want to classify a workload package together. Workload one may be on AWS because that's the right fit. Workload two may be on Google. Workload three may be on bare metal, leveraging Kubernetes, right? We have to. We always have to think about it that way and talk about it that way because people do genuinely get a little confused, right? It could be, hey, why would I have my application running on every single platform simultaneously? And usually, that's that's actually not the best outcome, at least you know from an experience or a technology standpoint. But what, real quick, one thing I do want to comment on, Max. One of the first points of advice if customers are at the point where they're adopting any cloud provider, we do give that adv- advice of avoiding those uh, highly proprietary managed service offerings, right? Or, or you know, it, it just leads to lock-in that's hard to unwind later, or you could think about it in terms of technical debt. But if you, uh, if you inherently don't want to choose a single platform and stay with it forever, then uh, generally it's, it's best to avoid that if you can. Yes, and they, and they also get very expensive very fast, I think, some of these. That's always the trick with it, right? Let's, let's segue for, for a second because of that. Running in, in public clouds, gets very expensive very quickly. I mean, this is not for most, I think for most companies, when they look at these things, the reality of the migration isn't necessarily cheaper than what they had beforehand. It's not, and cloud's not about, it's going to be cheaper for you than, than what you had. So as a service provider and as a, you know, partner helping a company through this journey, I mean, how do you explain that and talk people through this transition of, of what they're actually in for and what they need to prepare for? Because it's also, by the way, it's not just about this might cost you more money when you get rid of your data centers. It's also about, hey, you have to be really careful how you configure this thing, because if you're not, like you could have some surprises when your bill comes at the end of the month. And like, we need to make sure that you're ready for that and you're prepared for that. And you're also doing things to prevent that from happening. This, right. you know, so how, how do you help people with that? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely not an easy conversation, to be honest with you, because it is so nuanced. But it is very, very common for people to think, you know, moving to the cloud is synonymous with I'm going to save money by default. It, it really just does not work that way. One, if you're just doing a pure lift and shift and you're, you're not running a truly digital native cloud native you know, workload or approach, um, you're, you're not, you're just not going to see all of the, the benefits that you want in any respect, right? It's, you know, the cloud is not inherently meant to 
operate just like a standard traditional data center operation might look, right? So if you're not spinning up, spinning down, using a full DevOps framework, going containers or serverless where you can, you're, you're going to miss all of those potential savings opportunities, which by the way, it's not about savings. Again, it's really about making sure that you're leveraging you know, this agile, scalable, highly standardized framework to actually leverage all parts of your application uh, hosting needs, you know, on a, on a bite-sized kind of basis, right? So that's where, you know, I need more compute. Great. You spin up and you, you have to spin back down or else you don't ever see the benefit. But it's, it's pretty common, Max, and we're seeing a, a pretty big resurgence of people actually, you know, that made the big, big run to the cloud several years ago, actually saying, hey, we want to repatriate back to private cloud because they realize that, that technology has caught up enough to give a cloud-like experience at a much more manageable cost one and two more, more predictable model, right? And I think that's really the, the big surprise people find is it's so easy to over-provision, overspend, not maximize the benefits of the cloud. And you get that bill three, four, five months in and, and literally have a panic attack, right? Because it's actually two times, three times the cost of, of where you were before without you know anyone ever really understanding that it was coming. Hi, I'm Max Clark, and you're listening to the Tech Deep Dive Podcast. At Clarksys, we believe tech should make your life better, searching Google is a waste of time, and the right vendor is often one you haven't heard of before. With thousands of negotiated contracts, Clarksys has helped hundreds of businesses source and implement the right tech at the right price. If you're looking for a new vendor and want to have peace of mind knowing you've made the right decision, visit us at clarksys.com to schedule an intro call. There, there is a very specific alignment that has to be in place in order for, for hybrid cloud. And really what we're talking about in hybrid cloud, right, is the combination of a public cloud with some sort of private infrastructure for a customer, whether that's, you know, dedicated servers, bare metal, some sort of cloud platform, Kubernetes. I mean, that that really all encompasses this idea of hybrid cloud. Yep. So you do need to have a, a pretty, there, there is an intersection of, of size and scale and cost and, and, and capacity and all these things that have to kind of, you know, get stirred up together. And, and then, you know, you're a good candidate for hybrid cloud. Right. The conversation around hybrid cloud, it's always interesting to me is when you explain the outcome in terms of the cost differential from being in a public cloud to a hybrid cloud, I I think a lot of people think that you're lying to them when you actually break down the numbers, because it is a striking difference. I mean, it's it's not like it's you're saving 10% or 20%. I mean, we're talking massive differences in what the actual effective monthly cash flow is for that for that company. I mean, how do you walk into that conversation and what do people actually, you know, like what's normal now with Rackspace and Rackspace's world of expectations of we're going to move something out of this cloud vendor and put it into a private cloud environment for a customer and, and what that could actually mean for them? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's always a bit funny because there are strong reactions when you come in and say, no, the, the savings could be as much as 30, 40. I mean, in, in one of the more recent examples that Tyler and I are actually both partnering with, uh, with this particular client. We're talking closer to sixty percent, right? I mean, it can be very, very dramatic in some cases, and it's hard, I think, for for folks to wrap their head around it, right? the The whole point of moving to the cloud was more flexible, better savings, better outcome. And then we come in and say, "Hey, by the way, have you thought about private cloud, hybrid cloud? You could save thirty, forty, fifty percent." It's uh, ugh, you know, what does that actually mean? I I just I thought I thought we were moving the other way, and the reality is, it's just how the technology operates. It's about how we can manage the cost. Um, certainly, the market is dictating that 
everyone needs to be competitive, right? And and cloud is fully commoditizing no matter which version you're talking about, right? Certainly, you have folks that focus more on the enterprise side, and maybe they have different, you know, feature sets and so forth. But the reality is, compute is compute, RAM is RAM, storage is storage in the end, right? And everyone's going to be racing to get to, to normality. What we see and why we focus on the services side of that is helping customers actually leverage, you know, what they can the best way. But the easiest way to, to make it all connect, Max, is actually just to put the numbers in front of them, show them the side-by-side comparison, and it, it pretty quickly clicks at that point. I mean, there's a lot that goes into affecting a multi-cloud or a hybrid cloud strategy. Your application has to be ready for. I mean, talk about containers. Containers are great for these sorts of things. You can't be leveraged in on you know, this managed infrastructure pieces and, you know, proprietary databases. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. So, I mean, this is something that Rackspace is helping people understand and, and work towards of like, okay, you have this application that has this XYZ thing. And, and Rackspace has made a lot of acquisitions in this space in the last couple of years, putting yourself in a position to be able to say, okay, hey, we can help you modify this application to do what you needed to do in order to be more, you know, malleable or, or migrate, you know, in the future. And the other part of it with cost structures around public cloud versus private cloud, it's not just about compute. There's this little thing called bandwidth <laughs> that catches people by surprise, right? I mean, and you're seeing this a lot. I mean, come, you know, you, you don't really realize like, oh, I've got X petabytes of egress coming out of a cloud. And what does it actually mean for me in real dollars versus let's just move that somewhere else. And it's not necessarily saying, hey, we're going to save you a fortune on your compute costs. It's just all of a sudden your bandwidth cost normalizes. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm actually glad you brought that up. See, I even forgot, and we've been talking about this, and I talk about it every day, but it, it is one of those, those little, you know, small, small, but very large things that, uh, that people don't even think about. And that's something to note with, with any customer that we talk to. And, you know, that could be the, the make it or break it moment of actually looking at a hybrid cloud scenario versus fully moving to private cloud or, Hey, in some cases, maybe just keep it where it's at and, and we'll come in and just help you optimize, right? Those, those could all be various conversation points. But the reality is you're connecting, you know, let's say to a Rackspace private cloud, you know, solution and you're also leveraging AWS and you're not mindful about that cross traffic, which, which is your hub, you know, hub point to actually push egress to, to the world. It can get up there pretty quickly. And what we've actually gotten in the practice of doing is actually analyzing that for customers. And in some cases, just leveraging us for the back end, the really heavy workloads like databases, what have you, you actually get really good economics around some of that on a, on a bare metal or private cloud solution. And in some cases, you can leave the rest in, on the public cloud side, and it works well. And if you, if you have the right volumes and the right deal structure, you can get good rates there. And if not, we flip it the other way. And on our side, at least, we can get to extremely attractive rates in all of our different geographies with, with customers because bandwidth to us, it's a cost of doing business, but it's not something that we try to take you know points of margin on. We, we effectively uh, provide it at cost to customers, especially if they're if we're looking at multi you know multi petabyte deployments. You know, is one way to think about it. So it's always uh, it's always a little interesting, but it is one of those those little uh, ones. If you're not careful, it can sneak up on you. To paraphrase so some, something you said earlier, I mean, there's there's no right answer for for a company. I mean, there isn't there really isn't a right answer. It's just a this is the best answer with what you've given us in terms of inputs and and this kind of gets spit out and in six months the answer might change and uh, you know a year from then it might change again and six months later it might change again. So it's it, the name of the game really now is about you know flexibility and you know, being able to adapt, who can adapt fastest as time 
changes and as their business evolves. And Rackspace, because you're cloud agnostic, I mean, you really don't care now at this point if somebody's in public cloud or if they're in your private cloud. I mean, it's it's that has that's a really big change for Rackspace. It used to be okay, we want you in our data centers, and now it's we don't care if you're not in our data centers anymore. You know, it's we'd love it if you're in our data centers, but you don't have to be in our data centers to be our customer. And that's that's a pretty big shift, and that also shows you know where you guys are in the market and how you've evolved with the market. Yeah, one of the one of the other points that's unique and uh, that our customers, you know, really do uh, love the the deeper they dig in with Rackspace and the and the further they partner with us. Not only do we not care, you know, necessarily where the where you know the workload resides, we want what's best for the customer, both from a uh, technical and a financial perspective. But uh, we also give you flexibility. We know what works today isn't going to work in six months, or it may be different in six months. The business drivers may be different, and so you know, we want to make sure that customers feel comfortable moving forward with Rackspace as a partner, knowing that, you know, what we want is, is, you know, what's best, what's best for the workload, regardless of where that is. And so there's just inherent flexibility within, you know, the Rackspace agreements. Uh, there's flexibility within how the the customer success teams monitor the environment to make sure you're getting the most bang for your buck, that things are being right-sized. You know, we look at every component from a switch or a firewall down to storage on a monthly basis with our customers to look at, you know, how much headroom is there? What is the performance like? Is it overkill? Where can we right size here? How can we help save money for you all? And so that's one of the things that I find very unique about Rackspace, that mentality to be that partner that continually changes, continually drive transformation for customers. Uh, and it's something that uh, is, is, is unique in the space, right? And I think, you know, the other thing I've, I find uh, an interesting conversation with customers quite often is when we do get a customer that is is ready to go all in with the hyperscale cloud vendor, maybe they're coming off Rackspace private cloud or whatever the case may be, uh, they're usually very surprised that our recommendation is not to sign a large uh, commitment with an AWS or a GCP as an example out of the gate. We actually ask the customer to run for a year on top of the environment and let us really work with them to right size, migrate, make sure we're taking advantage of things before we commit to a large contract long-term to your point, Max, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to get locked in and there's always growth initiatives in those, in those long-term contracts with the hyperscalers. And some folks are, are on the trajectory to hit it and, and maybe one losing one customer may, may throw them off completely. Right. And so what we want to do is make sure that we put customers in a place to be successful, you know, financially and, uh, and technically. And so, you know, that's another area where we really take a, uh, a methodical approach into how we push a customer, how we help them move workloads to uh, the hyperscalers, both from technical perspective and then as well as commercial, right? I think that's as important as the other pieces as well. What I would say there, because you, you're, you're bringing up what is probably the most important point, if you go all the way back to your first question of this session, which was, you know, how is Rackspace transforming itself? How will we continue to, to stay ahead of that with our customers? The only thing in the end that we care about and, and you know, call it obsession, call it, you know, we're just really weird. And we've always done it since day one is fanatical experience, which is putting our customers first. So that's the only outcome that we care about that we're we're building the right outcome or outcomes plural for them, depending on what we're solving for. But that's our loyalty. And when we do that, well, we have customers that stay loyal to us stay with us for many, many years, and we help them go through all of those different cycles of, of technology adoption. And guess what, three months, six months, Six years from now, it's all going to look completely different. And our approach will always be the advisory services that we provide. So if I take a step back, that's what matters most, taking care of our customers first. But we've sort of broken what is this really complicated multi-cloud, 
world into, I would say, four primary uh, solution buckets on our side. And these are the four four pillars, and we continue to try and simplify this more and more over time. But we're a multi-cloud expert, so anything that falls into that bucket, whether it's public, private, hybrid, your data center, our data center, co-location, anywhere in the world falls into that. Then we get into apps, data, and security. And each of those takes the value of our offerings further and further and further up the stack. We could do recurring managed services. We could scale that up and down. We can offer professional services, whether it's migration, staff augmentation, coming in and doing really smart, you know, technical center of excellence type stuff, helping customers get to app portability. I mean, all of those are the types of things we do with our customers. And the whole point is to be flexible and to, to be more agile than really uh, there aren't a ton of competitors in, in the way that I classify Rackspace, I think still in the market, we're the largest peer play multi-cloud solutions provider, right? And there's just not a lot of people that that can that can say they, they really truly play in that space, maybe bits and pieces. And I think what uh, customers appreciate about our approach is not is one, not only that we're there for them and them, you know, as the as the only outcome, but two, because we're so focused on being able to to navigate the rest of it, we simplify that for them. And they like that they don't have to go out and get one partner for one piece, then somebody for the next, then somebody for the next. And I think, frankly, Max, that's why it's been great for us partnering with you, because you you understand that you take that same philosophical approach with your customers. And, you know, together, I think we we pretty much cover, you know, most of what they're trying to, to navigate, if not all of it, right? Yeah. And you, I mean, Tyler talked about flexibility and agreements, right. and this also comes into spend reallocation, right? And this is also something that Rackspace is very good about in terms of if you've decided that you want to shift from you know private cloud to public cloud public cloud to private cloud cloud a versus cloud b versus cloud c whatever these different things are you know how do you i mean you do help so let's talk about how you help people make those shifts and what that actually means to you in terms like a contract structure with rackspace like when i signed a contract with you guys like this you know it's it's not just like hey you're committing to this box in this facility i mean they're you know. Yeah, I would say, you know, think about it in terms of committing to a relationship. First and foremost, that's how we think about it. So if we're starting with one or two or five platforms, you know, from a technology standpoint, day one matters less to us. You know, now, now generally, you, you know, if you get back to the nitty gritty of how we actually model, we do expect customers to stay on, you know, whatever they start with for some period of time. Although, you know, contractually, we don't require it. It's just it's just common sense that you don't want to migrate every six months, right? That's that's <laughs> it's not an enjoyable experience for. Uh, Sorry, I, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. But, yeah, uh. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so so providing that commercial flexibility, we actually have those words in our contract that allow customers to make those changes, and in fact, we'll help them spot them proactively as time goes on. And we don't want to limit ourselves from being able to contractually make those decisions so that we can operationally deliver, and that's. That's the simple reality. But, you know, if we actually got into a standard engagement, you know, we'll, we'll come in from a pre-sales uh, perspective and we have all of the right resources to provide 80% of the guidance, if not 100% for, for our customers in most cases. But let's say we have to get down to a very detailed analysis. We need to really figure out, one, are you ready to move to the cloud or are we making the right decisions? We actually have a formal program. It's a cloud readiness assessment where we can come in, do the full inventory of of mapping every single workload, every single asset, you know, whether it's on the app application side, data center, blue, you know, blueprint mapping, et cetera. We can do all of that, figure out the dependencies, figure out which ones can move as is, should be, you know, refactored, 
you know, in some cases we make recommendations to actually let them sunset where they're at, depending on what the, what the long-term view is. But, you know, just as one example, that takes us probably, you know, a week, depending on customer uh, timing to work with us. And we use a mix of tools. We use a, a mix of our experts that actually will go and do interviews with application and, you know, I, I, you know, BU stakeholders, whoever may need to be involved, figure all of that out, we'll come back and that that becomes the framework for the rest of the discussion. And then after that, it's okay, here's what we're advising based on what we've seen, we think option one, you know, this is the best fit, purpose fit option to, to map to everything that we just did. But in some cases, by the way, if you can hear my uh, talk in the background, just a uh, fair warning, they're, they're in full force this morning. Um, but you know, once we have that blueprint, then we can make a lot of decisions. And then getting into how do we actually think about migration. I'll actually uh, probably let Tyler jump in while I give the give a little mute relief on my No, you know what's what's actually fantastic for me about like where we are in the world is is as we've had this sense, I've had this sense for a long time where it's it's it, you know, technology we get lost in technology, but but business is about, you know, that we're, they're people, you know, and you know, so our our phrase of it is is tech should make your life better, right? And so it's it's I've I've actually you know, one of the byproducts of of being everybody working from home in this pandemic is like, you know, there's a reality of life and people, you know, and children are part of it. So actually, I love it. But um, yeah, appreciate that. So part of scale comes down to process, standardization, normalization of operations, these sorts of things. And companies that haven't gone through this, this yet, maybe they're not in a fully blown ITIL framework yet. You know, they haven't, I mean, that's a, that's a massive, massive commitment to take a company to get there. Onboarding into Rackspace's environment, it's both a positive and a negative, I, th- I think, for a customer going through this experience in the sense that the amount of structure that, that gets imposed, if you're not ready for it or if you haven't had an experience with it, I mean, there is a, there is a learning curve to get into a structure, you know, because you are going to go through and you're going to create inventory maps every, every piece of everything, where it is, is it tagged properly, is it identified, do we know what it is? And just that exploration, people find things are like, oh, I forgot about that server that was underneath the stairs for the last decade. You know, you have these stories, right? But, yeah. you know, that that process is time consuming. And I know it's frustrating in some worlds of people like, oh, you know, I can't you just take everything over? Well, the answer is, is we can't, you know, we have to document it so we know what's actually running. So, you know, it's running as well. And this goes to another thing, which is, uh, you know, a decade ago. IT departments in general were way more resistant to having a partner like a Rackspace come in and and take over and not want to say take over, but actually augment their operations and how do you support, you know, environments. And I feel like IT departments understand that this is actually good for them now. You know, they, they want and need this help because nobody can manage effectively a private cloud environment, a data center and three different cloud vendors at the same time globally across, you know, and, and have, you know, and still and take a vacation. I mean, you just, you can't, you need right. somebody that has expertise in those things that actually is staffed for it appropriately. And so, I feel like Rackspace was probably the king of what became known as shadow IT of, you know, marketing departments going out and bringing up their own server infrastructure where you're managing it for it. And then the IT department would find out about it and be really pissed off. But then at the same time, you know, it was weird because IT departments would be upset about it. But then at the same time, it was like relief. Oh, man, I don't have to deal with this thing. Thank God. Right. And that relationship has shifted a lot, you know, for you as well over the last few years where I feel like IT is now on board and fully in, you know, on this idea. Yeah, look, I think uh, shadow IT will always be a reality that everyone has to deal with. So sorry in advance to all the CIOs out there. We, we promise we're, we're not intending to contribute to that. We are no longer considered 
from the IT side a threat or or an impedance to what they're wanting to do. Because and it goes back to what you just said, Max. It's not fun to tag everything, to manage the inventory, to think about where workloads should go, to manage not only the complexities of knowing all the different technology pieces that go into it, but the relationships between them. And ultimately, when you get down to it, think about every single supplier that you use, different contracts, you have to negotiate all of them. It really has become such a burden that I think most people are, are willing to, to ditch that. And I think it's important because the shift, I think, for IT uh, in, in a very positive way has moved from you know, a cost center that we need to go figure out how do we extract every penny we can and so focused on, you know, charge back, show back, man- managing all of those things just to just to, you know, drive the outcome that they're looking for. I think most people have realized that you have to get your IT, you know, your developers, your engineers focused on enabling the business to go drive revenue, to innovate faster, to actually set themselves up to to adopt whatever technology more quickly. And so in that sense, I think we're we're viewed more as a partner to the IT organization than we ever have been. And it's because we make their lives easier so they can go focus on supporting the business the way they need to. Well, I mean, shadow IT, I mean, nowadays, every application is this like a shadow IT concept. I mean, Slack started out by just install it. And then all of a sudden, you turn around, you have to do e-discovery. And like, what's the Slack thing that's running for X hundred people? Like, whoops. I mean, we're also seeing this in a different way, which is companies that were, let's call it cloud native. And you know, crossed the line and understood that they could go and acquire data center space and and have an economic reality very different from their cloud. Because I mean, let's face it, every cloud application has something that's running in it all of the time. There's a certain degree of elasticity within a cloud environment, but there there is a significant portion of that cloud environment that never changes. And those static workloads are, uh, you know, the, the prime examples of things that maybe necessarily shouldn't be running in a cloud environment that should be running in some sort of privatized infrastructure, because that's where you're going to get the maximum value out of it. So this this epiphany happens, they come off site, they they establish a data center relationship, they start putting servers in it, they start buying servers, and then they get down the path and they realize, wait, I've I've got 500 servers co-located somewhere that now I have to manage warranty items on. We have motherboards that are frying out and 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 hard drives that have to be changed. And now we've got a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And and you get into this like idea of and then it, it changes, right? So now you're looking at IT as a as as a logistics entity, right? Are you managing inventory and churning inventory properly? And how do you manage logistics, especially when this data center is, you know, two thousand miles away from where your actual business is based? And how do you support that? And and this is something else that maybe isn't really, I would say, the, the common thought process, but this is what Rackspace does. I mean, you guys manage logistics at scale globally for companies very effectively and just happens to be in this, the format of, of servers and network equipment. And so, but that's not a typical IT conversation. You don't, you don't talk to an IT department about, hey, we're going to manage your logistics for you. You talk about, you know, different things. And and this is something that we should, you know, we, we, we should talk about a little bit because this is a big thing. I mean, supporting a data center at scale is a very nuanced, specific animal. It really is. Yeah, when you think about scale, when you think about you know how, how much redundancy, when you think about all the certifications that go into it, when you think about this massive global supply chain, keeping it fully standardized, driving, to your point earlier, ITIL standards globally, which is not... I mean, if you're not used to, to leveraging ITIL, it could be a big lift. But you know, the Rackspace platform, if you want to think about it this way... Uh, we, we've actually spent two decades perfecting it, and and we've it layered in a lot of software and automation that allows us to actually do it. You know, not only at global scale, but highly efficiently. 
so much so that we can even manage in our customers' own data centers now as well, which has been an interesting deployment model. And Max, I know we've worked with a with a few customers on that that exact model. And the reality is, we can even you know extend that same experience and and all of our massive logistical expertise. To your point, you know, really anywhere they want to go. And Tyler, I don't know if you had had any other thoughts on that. I know you're you're working across all three of our key customer segments, but even even though you're supporting the Americas business, you you're still managing global deployment for your customers and seeing the same results, right? Yeah, not only seeing the same results, but uh, you know, seeing seeing the efficiency that we drive for customers. I think so often customers forget about Max, to your point, all of the things that you brought up from warranty items to motherboards to hard drives, managing inventory to uh, into life uh, devices, et cetera, right? And that's that's areas where uh, we definitely can help, and we can help you know globally. And you know, one of the the most unique things that that I love about Rackspace is just the methodology in which we deploy not only servers in a rack, but data centers themselves. And you know, the the most unique thing is you know I could pick up a data center technician from you know our DFW facility and drop them off in in Hong Kong, and everything runs identical. Everything's color coded the same. The carts go in the same spot. Trash cans are in the same area. I mean, every little thing that you think of, you know, there's there's little areas taped off where certain things go. Uh, screwdrivers are color coded. Power cords are color coded different colors. So it's extremely unique. And then the fact that we run it consistently across the board with such rigor is really a sight to see. And it's it's something that I think provides a lot of value to customers. Uh, kind of, it, it really is the foundation, right, of of what we provide. And so it's a uh, it's been unique to watch. Us deploy globally as we've we've scaled and grown, uh, but to see that methodology in the DNA of our data center and our employees in the data centers has been uh, really amazing to watch over the years. Now, Rackspace does something for global customers that I think is awesome and is not talked about a lot. So let's I want to talk about this. So we have a in the U.S. we end up with a very U.S. centric view of the world, mm-hmm. and then technology and internet and data center and cloud and all these things become very U.S. centric. But if you are not in the U.S., forget uh, like language barriers for a second. If you just talk about the actual practical, legal and financial impact of being a non-U.S. company doing business with U.S. companies, that introduces some things. Even if you're if you take away currency exchanges and everything else, and 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 you have to go through VAT. That becomes a big issue for a non-U.S. company and how they actually manage their infrastructure and how they manage, you know, these environments. And Rackspace has global operations. I mean, you have places of business outside of the U.S. It's it's also unique in the world where not very many people have gotten to the size and scale that Rackspace is, where you can offer these things. And this makes a big difference for customers, and this changes your engagement story somewhat. And so let, let's take the like language out of it. Let's talk about the other side, the business aspects of it. I mean, you break this down for me because this becomes a, a big piece of this puzzle that a lot of people miss and gloss over. Yeah, it's it's certainly uh, you know I, I think even if it's understood at a high level, you know the nuances and details that go into it certainly do matter because it is. I mean, just thinking about how you described it, right? Very complicated, just those those items individually, and then when you put it together, I mean, it just multiplies, but. You know, we are uh, one 365, right? That's, I think, pretty pretty commonly known out there. We do follow the sunset in terms of how we think about shift coverage, handoffs, how we manage these dedicated or named support pods that customers interact with, which is really important. So I'll give you an example. We actually have a really large uh, customer of ours. They're, they're deployed everywhere in the world um, and actually truly multi-cloud. So they use private. 
They use two different public providers and they still have their own bare metal that's still transitioning. And they are using Rackspace for the vast majority of that, but they're based out of Atlanta, supported primarily by my team for normal business hours. But then there's this, this very special thing that happens where we, you know, we make sure that there's an overlap on the handoff. We make sure any ongoing, you know, tickets that are being worked have, have a good kind of parallel structure to make, make this seamless from the customer's perspective. Now, even though they're based out of Atlanta and most of their operations are here in the US, they do have a UK team just like we do. They have teams based out of Hong Kong, Australia, and that's that's why we were such a good fit for them is we had a, a nice localized presence for all of the major hubs that they care about. So in the UK, they're serviced by the UK team and anywhere in their Asia Pacific region, it's primarily uh, Hong Kong and Australia, depending on on location. And obviously, you know, things like currency, things like language, you know, actually having one consistent experience, making sure that we're mapping all of those in a very standardized, cohesive fashion actually really does make a big difference with this customer. And they know who to go to for what, they know how we're going to service them, they know that it's going to be the same playbook run globally. And we actually start by creating that run book together with our customers. It changes and, and customizes over time. But you know, that's just one example. They have the same global experience 24 7 365. We follow the sun. But the best part is we can actually tailor that that localized experience because guess what? People in the UK may want to work with somebody right then and there, t- same time zone, you know, when we're out of this post-COVID world, be able to walk into the office together, et cetera. And uh, things like data sovereignty, et cetera, also make a big difference, right? So our com- you know, customers that have, have a uh, footprint in Germany want to have make sure they're out of our Frankfurt data center working with, you know, the team that's there locally is, is one example, right? So just a couple of ways to think about it, but there's so much more that goes into it even beyond that, right? I mean, data sovereignty in, it, in itself, right? You know, we, have, we, could, we could probably spend hours talking about it. I mean, this is not a small issue for companies, right? I mean, this is significant. And this isn't even compliance heavy companies. I mean, if you're, you know, we're not talking about people that are in healthcare that have a compliance mandate that goes on top of their financial services. This is just now the, the reality of the world. If, you know, where is your data sitting? What jurisdiction is that data sitting in? Do you have customers interacting with your data? Where do those customers sit in? And what are the rules that come on top of it? And if you're not ready to deal with that, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to learn how to deal with those sorts of things. And sometimes going to a partner who is already dealing with this thing at scale globally can just, you know, you can you can get a big shortcut out of it. You know, we don't need to figure this thing out. We can just go to somebody who's already solved this problem for us. Yeah, and that's well. One, we're we're seeing a lot of, uh, and and it's it's intuitive, I think, to a certain degree. But we're seeing a lot of surveys and and market analysis that's suggesting that data sovereignty, uh, data privacy, all of these issues are going to continue to be important, but probably accelerate quite a bit on the heels of COVID and how people will want to localize and you know kind of rally, if you if you will, in in whatever uh, scenario that might be. So we're expecting that to become more important. It's also one of the major barriers, actually, when we're working with customers on why a single cloud provider may not be the right option, right? They may not have that particular footprint to, to help with from a data sovereignty standpoint, or in some cases, if it is a highly regulated industry, just may not be, even though, even though some of the compliance measures or ways to keep workloads secure are there, it may just not be perceived well by their end customers, by the board, whatever the case may be, right? So I think there's certainly a bit of a perception issue as well. Anyways, we're keeping a close eye on those trends. And that's why, you know, for me, it's exciting that we have the options we do for our customers because we can solve for any of those a number of different ways. But, you know, if we were single threaded on any particular technology partner on our side, then, you know, we would be bound by by their constraints as as would our customers. And so 
um, that's, you know, that's, that's something that we're, we're extremely mindful of, I guess I would say. And, and the other thing that I, I still love about you guys is your ability to take on small customers, you know, and still support at the very, very small size, you know, a few servers. Right. I mean, you're, you're still operationalized and support, and this is not something where it's, it's, it's an afterthought. I mean, the very small startup size companies are still a fit for you. And on the other side of it, global companies are still a good fit for you. And that's also a very difficult thing to do and to, and to really, and, and this goes a lot to your heritage and, you know, your time in market, you know, spending 20 plus years developing these sorts of things, it, you know, you've, you've definitely gone through some pain cycles in order to get to where you are today. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, for some of the folks early on, maybe, maybe brain damage is a better way to put it. But, uh, you know, look, we've, we've been operating at a global uh, scale for a little over a decade. Our operational excellence teams, I mean, you know, our global data center, as an example, is still run by Jim Hawkins, who's been here as long as I have. You know, keep in mind all the things he's seen, all the discipline he's instilled, all of the wiki pages, the, you know, the guides, the training, you know, the compliance just from uh, uh, making sure that whether you're in Hong Kong or whether you're in DFW, that the cables are done exactly the same way, the same color coding, et cetera. I mean, that level of, of operational discipline is built into everything we do, and it has given us tremendous scale. Uh, just from a process and deployment standpoint. The other part that we actually don't ever talk about very often, Max, is that Rackspace has a ton of software-driven um, deployment models. We're software-enabled across almost every single thing that we do. And uh, we're actually in, in the process of taking this to market from something that's actually branded. But the Rackspace fabric that we use across everything has been in place for over a decade. And we actually have about 60, I think the latest stat was 64%, of all support interactions we have with customers are fully automated. So think about that. The most common tasks that customers may want to do, it could be simple break fix stuff. It could be, you know, based on their run book, this user, you know, uh, username needs to, you know, password needs to be reset. I mean, there's tons and tons and tons of stuff that we've been able to automate. And it's literally to to put a, a pretty fun stat out there. It's about 4 million transactions per month that we fully automated for our customers. And that's based on, even higher volume of tickets and calls coming in. So while that it's really nice that we've been able to automate that, what's most important is that that frees up our experts to then spend time on the most strategic, the most complicated scenarios for our customers. And that gives us scale across all segments. And we love all customers, right? So whether you have two servers or 200 or 2000 servers, we can manage it all the same because of this automation, because of this software-driven approach and, and this you know high degree of standardization globally. When you tell me those stats, I hear two things. I hear time and I hear money, right? And whenever you're spending time, you're spending money. Sure. And this 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 affects your margins and it also affects your customers' costs. So the more you automate, this automation is not a bad thing. Your automation is a really good thing. The more you can automate and standardize, the less time you have to spend, the faster the customer gets what they actually want resolved or or changed, and the less it costs. It costs you less money. It costs them less money. This is a good thing for everybody involved. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and it's it's not to imply that it's not a good thing. I just want to make sure folks know that uh, there's two parts to it, right? The automation is great, but it's uh, what it allows us to go do. And frankly, in some cases, customers love that they can just get a single pane of glass portal to manage everything. They have access to the integrated tooling and can just lean on us for advice and guidance, right? I mean, there's all flavors of this that that are are really great for customers. 
I mean, we'll, we'll have to spend another hour on this later because part of what we talk about when it, with, with your fabric and with your software systems is, I mean, you do give people the ability to do financial modeling against their cloud spends. I mean, you are tracking these sorts of things. You are, I mean, this isn't just something that you're doing a project and somebody's going through bills and creating spreadsheets. I mean, this is something that you're exposing to customers in real time mm-hmm. and they can see what's going on and, you know, they can understand what's happening and then you have data that goes around it and you can look at these things and figure out trends and identify areas and, yep. You know, and and for somebody who hasn't gone to that level yet, or is still trying to decipher an AWS bill by themselves, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's a very specific pain point. But I mean, if you've ever tried to understand an AWS bill at at at, at size, yeah. it's not easy, right? And and you, I mean, you have to have something that that can that can slice and dice this thing for you more effectively. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, exporting a CSV file and trying to create pivot tables and really understand it. If, if anyone's done it, it's its the most fun thing you'll ever do in your life, I promise you. <laughs> it's its pure hell, right? But uh, look, you can get tools, you can you can find ways to get there. But uh, it, it really is, even that is, is cumbersome because if you have, you know, one tool, it may not work with every provider. It, it may be hard to integrate. We've, we've done quite a bit there, actually, Max. I think even since you and I, I last spoke, I mean... Cloud Health is now fully integrated across every single platform offering we have. We have some really great integration points through our recent Onica acquisition that are coming in from a cost optimization standpoint. But even just having an API integrated billing platform so that you can get all of your bills pulled in, synthesized, and then plugged into Cloud Health where you can create your own custom tagging, dashboards, reporting, exports, that alone is pretty amazing, to be honest. And then when you you know call somebody like Tyler or I or somebody on our team and say, hey, I actually need your help getting this ready. I have a board presentation next week and I really want to show what our cost trend has been over the last two years and what we're doing to optimize. We could literally turn that around for customers within a day or two because it's all there at our fingertips and it's what we do every single day, right? I mean, it's it's there's so many what-if scenarios like that that we could walk through that are, are really just, I mean, it's, it's tremendous. One, how complicated it is and two, how sim- simplified it can also become. And the cool part about the uh, the people aspect of of uh, <clears throat> what Mills shared, and I always joke with with long term customers, but I don't think Rackspace would have survived without the South Texas just uh, you know Southern mindset of you know we genuinely want to help people, right? That's just how we are. That's that's what's in the DNA of of being a South Texas resident. And obviously, we've gone global, we've scaled, but I still feel that you know in our interactions with customers, even folks that maybe aren't in Texas, they're one of our other offices. But I think that's part of being a racker is you want to help people. And so to Steve's point, we, we have the tools, we have the process, but if we didn't have the people, it would be a much different experience. And so I think that's one of the things that we really truly love about Rackspace is we have the people and they want to help you be successful in whatever that is. And so it, it really is a unique experience when, when you deal with Rackspace. Absolutely. Infrastructure is commoditized. People are not. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's always a pleasure. I, we could spend you know ten hours just completely geeking out about Rackspace. I have no doubts about that at all. But we have to leave some for another episode. So I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. We're uh, happy to join any anytime, Max. And if you leave it to Tyler and I, especially, we will dork out for hours and hours before we have this stuff. But uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Max. Thanks for joining the Tech Deep Dive podcast. At Clarksys, we believe tech should make your life better, searching Google is a waste of time, and the right vendor is often one you haven't heard of before. We can help you buy the right tech for your business. Visit us at clarksys.com to schedule an intro call.